There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, today is a new day. It is. Good point. Yes, it's newer <laughs> than yesterday, not as new as tomorrow. That's pretty insightful. I, <laughs> I appreciate that. But last week we talked about paper routes. I had a paper route as a kid. Yeah. Did you yeah, have paper you said, no, I did not. Yeah, well, we talked about the benefits of planning at an early age, and we're going to sort of talk about that a bit more today, some more planning items, and how they relate to the current state of the economy and financial markets. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but financial markets have been a little volatile the last two years. I've noticed that. Yeah. So there's a lot of people out there that are carrying mortgage debt and other types of consumer debt that might be variable rate by nature. And these interest rate hikes that have occurred over the last, I guess, 12 months, when did the first interest rate hike occur? I think it was about Last March, so about About 12 12 months months ago. yeah, Mm -hmm. And they went up a lot in the last 12 months, right? So people that are carrying those types of debts are faced with much higher interest rates today than they were a year ago, right? Well, that's by design. Maybe that's what people don't get is that this is monetary policy at work. That's right. Right? This is the slowdown spending. But I guess it leads to some decisions for people like, do they... Stay invested. Do they pay off their debt? Yeah. Do they take new debt? Yeah, because existing debt is now, you know, as you say, if it's on a revolving like a credit line or something like that, it's a way more expensive today than it was a year ago. Way more. Way more. Like it's technically speaking. Yeah. That's the technical term. Because a five year mortgage a year ago, five year term, was somewhere around two percent. Mm-hmm. And today, if you took out a mortgage, a five year mortgage, isn't it like Six and a half. It is. And just look at the bank, the prime rate, which a lot of credit lines are tied to. I think a year ago, 2.45, today 6.7. Yeah. So quite an increase. That's if you have it at prime. prime. That's right. And a lot of those unsecured lines of credit are prime plus one, prime plus two. Exactly. So those start to get pretty expensive. But I was talking to another client about this a couple weeks ago. And he talked about how interest rates, yeah, they're higher now than they were a year ago, but talked about his first mortgage and how his rate was, I don't know, 17% or something. So it's all perspective, I guess, too. It is. And I think we've just been used to low interest rates for so long now that anything up in this area, which, you know, 20 years ago would have seemed pretty good, it seems really high. And a lot of purchases were made on the assumption that interest rates were going to stay low. I remember I worked at a bank and we were doing mortgage lending and people were really excited because we could get them a seven-year, 6.3% mortgage rate. Mm-hmm. That was an exciting time. Obviously, that changed a lot over the next year. I think so. Right? But, yeah. Yeah. So in regards to planning, now a lot of this data we're going to go over came from our colleague, Blair Howell. Blair was supposed to join us today, but he bailed. Yeah, I know. Really? What a guy. 
Just bailed. Just bailed. Just bailed like that. Something about picking up his kids or something, Ugh. you know, but. It's always some excuse. Yeah, but we're just giving him a hard time because we had to change the, the time that we record this and it didn't work for his calendar. So Blair, you're off the hook. We're just right going to go through okay. your, your items. So Blair provided us with some data points in regards to planning. One of them is that there's a record level of personal debt in Canada, and that's probably due to the long period of low interest rates before last year. And I don't know what the real number is, but- I think if you looked at the Canadian number and the U.S. number, they'd be similar, not not in total dollars borrowed, but relative weighting of That's debt, right. right? Yep. So there's there's a lot of debt out there. And there's some people that think that maybe things like CERB might have actually impacted that too. For sure. Right? Yep. I don't know if that's true or not. But when somebody was doing planning a year ago and they were taking out a mortgage at 2%, maybe they chose a variable rate mortgage. And that 2% payment is now, as you say, like, I don't know, six and a half or something like that, right? That's going to change things for you. So there's often people asking, you've had this question over the years, I'm sure, Greg, should I pay down debt or should I invest? And what do you tell people? Well, I actually tell them that it sort of depends. And when one of the things it depends on is the current level of interest on the debt that you're paying, particularly if it's non-deductible debt, which would be things like car loans or typical lines of credit, say, and relative to what the expected earnings would be from investing in the stock or bond markets or both. And we're going to talk a little bit about what to expect in the stock and bond market returns if you can actually do that. But The point is, I think you have to take a good look and you have to go back to the plan to see, does it make sense to actually pay down debt or pay down a portion of the debt? And I think that's where where the planning comes in, because as, as Blair had pointed out, when these plans were done last year or two years ago, not only were the we always try to be conservative in our estimates of returns, but, you know, we also would have had inflation at it somewhere between two and three percent. And so a lot of things have happened. The markets did not provide the average returns that we hoped for last year. Interest rates are a lot higher. And so I think what it really does is it speaks to, you know, we better revisit the plan. For sure. But I think it's kind of a loaded question when somebody says, should I pay down debt or invest? Because it's really easy to say, well, it depends on what your borrowing cost is. But if the stock market's down 20% and the borrowing costs have gone up three to four times, it's not easy to say, well, I should just sell some investments and pay off the debt, right? Because the expected return on those investments is higher going forward than the debt payment is Absolutely. that you'd be paying off. Well, and, and that's why I say, you know, when you revisit the plan, though, what you might be end up revisiting is, is a spending plan, right? So maybe there are some changes that need to be made in the spending plan to accommodate higher interest payments and, and things like that. You've been talking to my wife again. She's always telling me to adjust my spending I promised her I wouldn't tell. (laughs) Because this can affect everybody. So even high income earners can find themselves really stretched when you have, I don't know, lots of outstanding borrowing. Interest rates have gone up. Your cash flow has stayed stable, but hasn't gone up with those interest rates, right? right? There can be a real pinch. So this can affect a broad spectrum of people, right? That's right. And some of the things when you consider some of the items in the financial plan, obviously the cash flow, how much cash do you need? Where's the cash going? Do you have an emergency fund? Because maybe this is the time that the emergency fund is is put to good use to help cover some of those extra interest charges. Planning, what if your mortgage is coming up for renewal? That'd be a scary one right now. That would be. 
And that's where a lot of people might be considering taking from savings or taking from investments to pay down debt. And you can understand the desire, but as you say, it may not actually be the right thing to do in the long term. And so what do you do? And, And the best advice, I guess, that we could say is take a step back, revisit the plan, figure out what we need to do in terms of debt service, in terms of other cash flow requirements. Maybe you're making monthly contributions to tax-free savings accounts or RSPs, things like that. Maybe those can be deferred a little bit while we deal with the current cash flow requirements. Maybe adjusting the things you're spending your money on, right? Absolutely. I know we do a lot of grocery shopping at Safeway, for example. Uh Safeway's not a cheap place to to get your groceries from, by the way. Not the cheapest. Yeah. No offense intended to Safeway. None, none. (laughs) Just a fact. Nothing against Safeway or Sobeys (laughs) or Co-op or any of them, but there definitely are cheaper places. And, you know, you have to look at some of those things. Even things like, this might sound a little silly, but the gas station near my house Uh on Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays is two cents off per liter. Sweet. So why wouldn't I just get my gas on Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday? Why wouldn't you? I don't know, you know, unless I, <laughs> unless I really need it. That's right. Yeah, so there's definitely decisions that can be made outside of selling your investments to pay down the debt. That's you right. You might just have to rein in your spending. That's right. right. You know, and we're at that point now, and as we've talked in previous episodes, I mean, both stocks and bonds were down last year. So there's not a lot of places to go in the portfolio where we've had just a tremendous, a tremendous year that we feel good about liquidating assets. So part of that question that people ask, well, should I sell something to pay down debt? Well, what do I expect to get next year? And that's a question that comes up a lot, you know, and people, what do you think stocks are going to do next year? What do you think we're going to earn on our bonds? You know, and how does anyone predict expected returns from stocks? It's a bit of a a mugs game to try to say, oh, well, I think stocks will do, you know, 10% next year. On what basis? Well, there's a whole industry of investment and economics professionals that, you know, make their living trying to make predictions about future returns on stocks. And they'll use things like macroeconomic forecasts, historical data analysis, fundamental analysis of companies' earnings, et cetera, other predictions and things. But in the end, the best information we have is probably based on what happened in the past. And that's not the only information And because historical data can actually be manipulated to kind of provide any narrative that you'd like, right? So there's, let's say, for argument's sake, we've got 100 years of stock market data from the US. Well, you know, if you look at how to have stocks done from 1926, which is the beginning of the really robust data that we have, until the end of 2022, well, stocks have grown about 10% a year on average. And after inflation, about 6.9%. So that tells you inflation was about 3.1% over that time. So 10%, well, do we use 10% as our expectation of stock returns? Maybe not. Maybe. If you look at the last 50 years, you know, so go back to 1972 to the end of 2022, the annual return's been about 10.4%. So that sounds pretty much like the long-term return all the way back to 1926. But if you look at the last 22 years, which is still a long time by most most people's standards, you know, you talk to investors and what's the long-term, you know, Three years seems like a long time for investors. 10 years is a very long time and 22 years, almost a lifetime. The annual return has just been 6.5% over the last 22 years and about 4% after inflation. 
And then if you look down even to some 10-year periods, and we've talked about this in the past, the 10-year period from 2000 to 2009 actually saw negative returns for stocks over the entire 10-year period. What do they call that? The lost lost decade. decade. Yeah. Exactly. So based on all that history, how in the world are we going to predict returns going forward? And the answer is, well, we can't really. We can't really provide a sound number. But as you say, we're just using data that you can gather. That's right. Right. So we do have a couple of sources of information. Now, listen, as I said, there's a whole industry of people that are going to be analyzing individual companies and trying to calculate earnings. And then they add up the earnings of all of those companies in the S&P 500 to come up with an earnings number for the S&P 500. And they use that to predict the level of the stock market. But in order to do that, they have to use kind of like, a, they have to apply a magic formula. And that magic formula talks to, well, okay, well, what multiple of those earnings do we expect stocks to trade at? And that's the tricky part, right? Because I think you could probably get enough people to get a good estimate of what the earnings on the US market will be. So there you go. But the other thing we can look at, other than just historical returns, is we can look at the starting level of valuations. So if we're trying to sort of project, well, where could stocks be over the next 10 years based on where they are today, we can look at the starting level of valuations. And stock market valuations go through cycles, just as do the markets and the economy in general. And so one of the valuation measures that people look at is something called the CAPE ratio or the Schiller P.E. ratio. P.E. stands for price to earnings. And, you know, we've talked about this on other shows, but price to earnings just gives you a, a number that says, well, what is the stock or what is a market trading at its price relative to its earnings? Well, I have a, an easier way of describing it. You know, if something's trading at 18 times price to earnings, yeah. it takes 18 years to recover $1 per year. That's right. And so the price to earnings ratio is just a number that says, where is this stock or this market trading relative to its earnings? And so to take an even simpler example, if a stock is trading at 10 times earnings, then basically when you're buying the stock, you're paying a price that's 10 times the value of one year's earnings, which means, as you Didn't say, just say that? Well, yes. But the I other, said it differently, though. But the other way to look at it, too, is that, okay, so so your return is $1 for every $10 that you invested, so about 10%. Right. So your return is 10% based on a stock that's trading at a PE of 10. The problem with using just the overall price-to-earnings ratio is that at certain times, that number gets really wacky. And an example of that time would be during the credit crisis, you remember the global financial crisis of 2008 yeah, and 2009? It's, it's, it rings Is that a bell. Ringing a bell? rings a bell, yeah. You mean when the stock market was down 50%? That's right. And so when stocks were down 50%, their price to earnings actually were trading at wildly high, like 100, 200, 300 levels, which seems, well, that's strange. They're trading at very low prices, how could the P.E. ratio be so high? The answer was because earnings went to zero or negative. And so the CAPE ratio, CAPE stands for cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio, and it looks at price relative to earnings, but over a 10-year normalized period, which eliminates those fluctuations in profit margins caused by the business cycle. Okay, and so if you look at the current CAPE ratio, and you see that it's particularly low, 
then you might expect higher stock returns in the future because on a relative basis over long periods of time, you'd say, well, it's, it's trading at very low levels. And uh, likewise, if the current level or the current CAPE ratio for the market as a whole is particularly high, then you might expect lower returns going forward because the ratio might revert back to the mean. So just to put some numbers around this, the most recent 20-year average of the Schiller PE ratio for the U.S. market is 26.1, okay, which is a very high number relative to the last 50 years or 100 years, but that's what it's been, 26. And what's it at now? It's at 29 now. Which is higher than 26.1. So it's about 11.5% higher than the most recent average. So that could mean a lower return for stocks, maybe 4 to 5% a year over the next 10 years versus the historical returns of 6.5% over the last 22 years. Let's use the 100-year number just because it's easy. So in other words, if the expected return in stocks is 10% a year and your KPE ratio is higher, then we're expecting maybe instead of 10% a year, maybe 5% a year. So you're still getting return is what is that's the point right. I'm trying it could, to make, it could right? be something lower. Yeah. And it's also not a guarantee because the we've seen the Schiller PE ratio has actually stayed much higher than than average over the last, you know, the last 20 years. But let's say we buy the story that okay, well maybe the markets will only return 5% over the next number of years. Does that mean you shouldn't invest in stocks? And I would say of course not. And for a variety of reasons, the first one is that it's it's only one valuation measure and there's no guarantee that it's going to prove to be the strongest predictor because so many other things could happen that would make that number irrelevant. Well, actually, that's a really good point because there are some people that point out that there are thousands of inputs that go into the future price. Exactly. So you're just talking about one particular... We're talking about it, and, and it's strictly a valuation measure, and it's strictly used to say, do we think stocks are highly priced, low priced, or reasonably priced today? And that's really all that valuation measure does. But the other thing is, we've been talking about the CAPE ratio for U.S. stocks only. And as anyone listening to this show knows, we recommend a diversified stock portfolio that includes both Canadian and international markets. And as of the end of December, the Canadian CAPE ratio was about 21. Europe was 19. So on a relative basis, it looks like, well, maybe there's some parts of the world that are undervalued relative to the current U.S. stock market. So again, lots of opportunities globally that could result in better returns than those in the U.S. On the other hand, it's only a guess. It's only an estimate. And so and so it may provide some color around whether or not we think markets are overly highly valued, but we wouldn't allow it to change our overall strategy of investing globally and making sure that we have U.S. stocks, Canadian stocks, and international stocks in the portfolio. Well, because Canada is only 3% of the world market, right? That's right. And the U.S. is like 58%. Yeah. So whatever right. happens in the U.S., even though they're, from a pricing perspective, they might be more expensive, right. you can't ignore the U.S. Well, that's right. And the other thing is, of course, when you talk about the S&P 500, those are the 500 largest companies that trade on the U.S. markets. And they might tend to be more focused in, in large companies and growth companies. And so there may be parts of the U.S. market that are actually undervalued. If you look at smaller companies and, of course, value companies, which by their definition have lower valuations. And so there's lots of opportunities. And again, it's why it makes it so difficult to 
try to predict, you know, whether now is a good time to be buying stocks or not based on future expected returns. And it becomes a market timing question that we, we know we can't really answer that effectively. Actually, I read something the other day. It said that the Dow Jones Industrial Average is the 30 largest companies in the U.S., right? None of those companies that are in the list today were in the list 50 years ago. Exactly. Right? Those companies yeah, change. That's right. So the S&P 500 is the 500 largest companies, but over the course of the years, those companies all change, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to move on to fixed income or bonds for a second, because we try to make, or many people try to make the same kind of predictions about future bond returns as they do about future stock returns. And like stocks, future bond returns are difficult to predict, but there actually are some things that could help to improve estimate. And what those are, when you look at a bond, the return on bonds is a combination of two things. The interest payments that the bonds pay every six months, typically, which we refer to as the the interest rate or the yield, and any capital gains or loss on the bonds based on any price changes between the time you buy the bonds and when you might sell them. Okay, and the combination of the interest rate that you earn and any gain or loss on the price of the bond between the time you bought it and sold it is basically the yield to maturity. That's what you earn on a bond from the day you buy it till the day you sell it. Now, if you buy a bond at today, a brand new bond at $100 and it matures at $100, there's no gain or loss and your return is entirely from the interest payments you receive on that bond. So, how do we predict future bond returns? Well, it turns out that historically, one of the best predictors of future bond returns is the starting level of yields. Okay, so today, yields are a lot higher than they were a year ago. And so going forward, the expectation is that bond returns would be better. I hope to God that they are relative to last year, but bonds would be better because of a higher starting yield, which implies, as we've talked before, as you know, bond prices and bond yields are inversely related. So when yields go up, bond prices go down. So if we're starting with a higher yield, that implies a lower starting price for the bonds. And that could be indicative of better future returns because of the fact that the yield will provide a reasonable estimate of return over time. And so when you think about it, high interest rates, high yields, low prices, what do we want to do when we're, when we're buying stuff? Want to buy low. And so that might indicate that this is a good time to be holding or, or buying bonds. Because actually, just going back to the interest rate discussion, interest rates are high. Therefore, new bonds being issued are being issued with higher interest rates. Exactly. And old bonds that maybe didn't carry these same high interest rates would have declined in value to a point where the yield to maturity is much higher in line with expectation. So we talked about the fact yields have risen quite strongly over the last year as you know central banks have raised short-term rates to counter inflation and longer-term yields have gone along for the ride so to speak as we know the central bank only controls the short-term rates and then the longer-term interest rates you know two years five years ten years and on are set really by the bond market participants okay but look at what's happened to yields and yields to maturity so let's talk about the Canadian bond market. So the Canadian Universe Bond Index, which is our benchmark for Canadian bonds. Well, the iShares Canadian Bond Universe ETF, so that's just an exchange-traded fund that replicates as closely as possible the Bond Universe Index. There's about 1,500 bonds in there. Currently 
has an average yield to maturity of 4.32%. And if you look at the corporate bond index, has a weighted average yield to maturity of five and a quarter percent. And so if you buy those indexes today, or those ETFs today, those are going in yields to maturity. So what will bonds return next year? Who knows? But you've got a pretty good chance of earning somewhere towards that 4% or 5% yield just because that's the going in yield to maturity. Maybe just describe to everybody, like, why is the bond universe ETF have a lower yield to maturity than the corporate bond ETF? Sure. Well, the Canadian bond universe index has basically most of the publicly traded bonds in Canada in that index, and that includes a large portion of government bonds. Probably 50 to 60% of that index is government bonds. Government bonds tend to have lower interest rates than corporate bonds because they have a lot more safety. There's virtually no credit risk in owning government bonds, meaning they're very unlikely to default. And we won't get into discussions of the US right now. So in Canada, they're very unlikely to default on a government bond and therefore lower risk, lower return. Whereas corporate bonds have higher credit risk, even though there's lots of very high quality companies in the corporate bond index, it doesn't have the same credit quality as the government and therefore you tend to see higher interest rates. And so that's the difference. That's the 0.9% difference we see between the current yield to maturity on the bond index of 4.3 and the corporate bonds of five and a quarter. So you're just talking about corporate bonds, government bonds, but there's a lot of people these days that are like, well, why don't I just buy GICs? What do you say to that? Well, I would say, look, totally understand why somebody might be interested in GICs today. As of this speaking, this recording, you can get- What did you just say there? Oh, I'd, I'd, uh, as of the speaking. Some, some people have a way with the English language, while others of us not have way. Anyway, at this time, one-year GICs, you can get between 48 and 5%, and five-year GICs are paying about 4.3%. And that's why 4.8%, it sounds pretty interesting, and a lot of investors have started to consider GICs in lieu of stocks and bonds, given this seemingly guaranteed quality about them. But it's important to remember a couple of things. One is that in Canada, only the first $100,000 of GICs is guaranteed by the government. And anything over that basically is backed by the faith and credit of the bank or institution that's issuing the GIC, but not guaranteed by the government. And now, a lot of people won't be concerned by that if the issuer is one of the big five Canadian banks. Most people don't believe that our banks are going to default. Well, Royal Bank just came out with their quarterly earnings and they reported $3.2 billion. Yeah, it's pretty good. It sounds like it's a long way away from default there. Uh, so, but again, you do have to keep in mind that anything over $100,000, it would be like putting the rest of your money into a bond issued by the bank as opposed to a, an actually guaranteed investment. Okay, so back to the question, should you sell your stocks or bonds or both and place money in GICs? Well, the answer is maybe, and it really depends on your asset allocation. Because, you know, would you sell stocks to buy GICs? Well, I, I wouldn't think so. That's an asset allocation decision that was made in the planning process that we know that GICs are not going to provide growth in the long term the way stocks are expected to. So that, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Should you replace bonds with a GIC? Well, possibly, but again, only depending on 
what the strategy is around the bond portfolio. And to be honest, I tend to look at GICs more for money that's sitting in cash and has no current use. Because if you look at this, two problems with GICs. One is reinvestment risk. Okay, so let's say we went out today and bought that best one-year GIC at 5%. Well, there's no guarantee that a year from now, one-year GICs will still be paying 5%. If we go into a recession, interest rates may start coming down, and a year from now, the GIC rates might be 3.5%. Well, because a year ago, they were 2%. Way lower. Yeah. 0.8. I've, I've for got a five some year? maturing for a one-year. One-year, yeah, okay. and that's right, much better for a five-year. But a one-year GIC a year ago was 0.8%, and today it's 4.8%. Yeah. So quite a change, and things can reverse course. So reinvestment risk is a big issue. And secondly is illiquidity. If you buy a five-year GIC today and all of a sudden in two years there's better opportunities elsewhere, you're locked in. And the banks in general don't let you out without causing you some pain in the forms of a prepayment penalty or something like that. So do we know that bonds will outperform GICs over the next one to five years? Absolutely not. But there is a good chance that given current high yields, offered even by conservative bond funds like the bond ETFs we talked about and other other high-quality bond mutual funds, there may be better long-term opportunities that also offer benefits like liquidity. Well, I ran into this a couple weeks ago. Somebody was looking at GIC rates. These were CIBC-issued GICs. They looked at the one, two, three, four, five-year rates. But then we looked at a bond issued by CIBC that's trading in the market and it was a five-year bond. Well, the yield on the five-year bond was actually higher than the yield on the five-year GIC. So you could get just as much, if not more income. Plus you also had the liquidity because you could sell that bond at any time without any penalty. That's right. And so and what you're talking about there is just the, the sense that with a GIC, people feel comfortable that it's guaranteed. But again, it's guaranteed by the issuer. And so whether it's a CIBC GIC or a CIBC bond, pretty much the same credit quality. And as you say, better liquidity. We should, just for compliance sake, we've mentioned a few names in this podcast. Yes, we have. Are we recommending any of those names? Not specifically, no. Not specifically, no. 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 But we are recommending that you review your plan. Absolutely. And you talk to your advisor if you have questions with regards to, is now the right time to sell and pay a down debt? Is now the right time to buy more of something? These are all questions that come up all the time but they come up much more frequently when markets are in, are volatile like they are. Yeah, right on. And lastly, Greg, are we recommending that listeners maybe reach out to the CM group for some of those questions? Yes, we are. Yes, yes. always. Yes, always. All right, should we just end it there? Let's end it there. Okay, till next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy.
This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.